games with hyper realistic graphic bone shattering brains exploding you know all the stuff that you love video games for that now it's like looking really good like really 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 good as far as the graphics that's only going to get better and that's actually what is concerning me is that there's going to be a spot where like a mortal combat could be look so realistic that we'll have to make an argument for why that's okay or like why maybe it's not this is Kotecki on Tech. I am James Kotecki, joined here by Lester Chen, head of Gaming Americas at YouTube. Lester, it is great to talk to you again. It's great chatting with you, James. So Lester, you and I chatted at CES in January, and you are one of a group of people that I just wanted to keep the conversation going with. Because we had like 10 minutes, I think, to talk about the entire video game industry and esports <laughs> and, and everything. And uh, it seems like we may have just scratched the surface there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 10 minutes to talk about all those yeah. things is, is definitely not enough. <laughs> Let's start with just today. Like, what is occupying your mind today in your world? Oh, God. Okay. Um, there is so much going, so much, so many phenomenal things going on in the gaming space. I can't, I don't even know where to begin. Um, I think for us as YouTube and just being such a force in the gaming space, we're constantly kind of battling how we look at all kind of video formats, whether that's live or VOD um, or even beyond, right? Like VR, AR formats, how we, most importantly, how we plug in with some some of the new products that um, Google will be rolling out. So like things like Stadia Mm -hmm. is top of mind for everyone, Uh, how we really interconnect with other cross-functional Google products like Google Play or Cloud or Android. Um, so it's, it's like this giant Goliathan task of thinking about, like, where do we fit as a video content platform? Because I think in many ways we're lucky because everyone's trying to develop content, content strategies for promotional reasons or otherwise. So we're really trying to just, like, balance all these things at once, which is um, a big task. Yeah. <laughs> And, and I mean, going from there, like we're trying to figure out also how to not stray too far from our roots, right? How do we continue making like gaming creators super happy on our platform? Uh, how do we keep our develop like our developers and our publishers on the platform really happy? Um, so that like in this world of ever changing competition and a lot of platforms getting the space is always something we try to continue to nurture. So I'm glad you brought up Stadia. I obviously want to talk about that, but first, it just. Uh, all the different kind of things that you mentioned happening, even just within Google, mm-hmm. makes me, from the perspective of a content creator, maybe a little bit overwhelmed, right? Because if, if, <laughs> I, if I, I mean, I think about myself as a podcaster. I previously did a lot of YouTube videos, not in the gaming mm-hmm. space, but I, I know the I know the mindset of a YouTube creator a little bit. And I get into this because I like doing the thing that you and I are doing right now, right? Like the creative mm-hmm. part of the thing. But mm-hmm. then when I finish the product and I'm getting ready to distribute it or put it out somewhere or promote it or cross promote it, I have all these different uh, possibilities open to me. So how do you at Google and YouTube think about kind of decomplexifying that? Like like you, Lester Chen, and your team at YouTube are taking on the complexity so that I, the creator, can just focus on the creation part or, or am I as the creator going to have a lot of decisions to make going forward? It's kind of a gentle and eloquent or elegant rather, a uh, mix of both. I think the thing that is going to continue to happen will be 
richer product features that help do the latter. So like help guide you to make the job that you do easier. I think, um, the whole tools calibrated towards hopefully helping you towards that path, less steps to get set up, more tools that help your surface accurately get tagged and flagged and all those good things. But I, I will say it's, I don't think it's going to get easier. I think as the kind of advent of like internet entrepreneurs and content creators advances, everyone's just always looking for more tools. Mm-hmm. Um, I think as a pure video service, you know, like anyone, any Joe Schmo can upload a video gaming or not right now. Uh, what really sets the casual uploaders up from the careerists, like the people who do it every day, sometimes uploading one or two videos, it gets a little bit scientific. And I think we're trying to give as many tools as possible to these these creators, right, that are sticky on the platform, that aren't just looking at YouTube as, you know, hey, I'm just going to try to upload one viral hit, right? Like they're actually trying to do it every day. Uh, and, and make a career out of it. So with that said, you know, we're always getting feedback from creators as to both how to make it easier, but also to give them more tools. So it's a little bit of a, <laughs> you know, it's always yeah. like kind of a balancing act of like, well, if we keep on iterating and the product turns into not to, you know, shade them, but like a MySpace and there's too many things going on, there's music, there's social feeds, there's everything else, then it gets a little bit um, confusing. So I will say that admittedly youtube is a pretty complex product right like even if you go through uploading a video it's 10 plus steps right all those boxes you need to check your titling your thumbnails um where you want to display all these things so it's definitely not easy by any stretch of the imagination right now but um it's it's kind of it's it's a great question trying to always make it easier while also building tools that make it more enriching for the creators so YouTube is what twelve years old now, almost. Yeah, 12. about. Yep. Um, so you think about okay, twelve years, all this content, um, and and you know, thinking about the next ten to twelve years, I, I guess I just wonder, like my son who is five, when he gets to be my age, when he's an adult, is he going to have you know forty years worth of YouTube content searchable and, and open to him? I mean, like, where does this all, where does this all, uh, where does this all stop? Where does it just keep going uh, ad nauseum? You talk about people uploading videos every single day, and I understand that that's necessary from a content creator perspective. Mm-hmm. But how do we begin to make sense of where we're actually going when we have so much damn content? It's a really good question. Um... It's for the foreseeable future, the way we catalog and library content. I mean, this is kind of like something I always think about, like how how long of a history am I keeping on Facebook or how much of a video history am I keeping on uh, YouTube or how many tweets do I wish I could have deleted in the past, yeah. right? Like when does the catalog of video or text or social posts and pictures, when is that? Is that ever going away or is it ever compiling? Um, I don't have that answer for you, unfortunately. I do know that as we expand and more and more um, people like your son are starting to look at, like, I think there's an inherent nature, even when I was young and before YouTube, to record and, like, share, right? Mm -hmm. I think as long as that human intrinsic nature of you have something to entertain with or you want to record something to entertain or to educate or to empower or just even very surface level stuff to get a laugh or, you know, anything. Um, We want to kind of be a medium. And it's crazy that, you know, cloud computing and and even these video platforms offer just essentially a free service for you to express yourself right now. 
that's probably going to be like I don't see servers shutting down or back catalogs of videos being taken. Like there might be essentially every I don't know maybe ten years some scrubbing right of inactivity and Mm. whatnot. But um, I see us as a platform like always trying to just be there. It's it's like a video platform where anyone can upload for as long as the foreseeable (laughs) future can see, and that's kind of like daunting when it comes to us as a platform and talking about responsibility, right. And, and like where we play as far as, as a platform that is such a mirror to society and not just like Western society, just emerging markets, everything else and how people are learning to do, learning to get their political views or learning how to fix things or learning how to play games or anything else. I think that's this constant notion that we need to make sure we're responsible so that, um, the people who either monetize or the people who upload and monetize, can um, feel like they're in a platform that has some type of rules and parameters and that it's not a complete wild, 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 wild west, you know, when it comes to internet consumption. Because I I know right now, you know, yeah, I'll I'll leave it at that. Well, I mean, I was just going to say, we've seen a lot of criticism recently of YouTube as a platform as far as surfacing suggested videos that take people down rabbit holes that go to not truthful places. And and maybe YouTube is responsible for radicalizing people. There's all kinds of criticism of YouTube. And I don't put that all on you. And I know that's, that's a lot of that has nothing to do with gaming, but I'm wondering how do those issues then uh, refract into the gaming space where you are? And how do you think about that as trying to run specifically the, the kind of section of YouTube that's about gaming? I think we can like learn a lot from these things. And I think we're the unfortunate, um, I guess, whatever the opposite of a benefactor is from these things that affect the platform at whole. I think there's, uh, when we look at, you know, if we're trying to build gaming communities within YouTube, I do know we're probably not helped by um, general perception of the platform and, you know, all these other things that kind of come up in the news cycles. So although, yeah, I think it's we have a lot to learn as a gaming community. I think there's some things unique to gaming that if we don't get ahead of can continue to perpetuate in a negative way. You know, when we talk about, I don't know, gender, diversity, toxicity, these are all things that have been swirling around in just the general gaming system for, you know, the past few years. Mm-hmm. And all these other world events that are affecting YouTube at a whole have kind of taught us how to react or how to get ahead of these, these issues. Um, thankfully, I think... You know, for the most part, gaming very specifically hasn't been, um, you know, like aside from a few years ago with Gamergate and some of these other things. Like, I think, yeah, it's it's mostly a learning. <laughs> it's mostly a learning of detecting when these things happen, how to react, how to, you know, think progressively about community, community guidelines, policy. It's ever shifting, though. You know, it's like, like I said before, if we're a, a kind of a one to one mirror of the world um, it's like, you almost have to be the world police of content, right? Like what applies to this one region might, might affect, you know, a different region and how rules and regulations are interpreted. It's, it's pretty wild to think about as, as being such a, like a global content platform where you're crossing the lines between someone in Japan and someone in India and someone in Brazil and and then back here to the U S. And is there a technical solution or a series of technical solutions for that? Or it seems mostly like what you're talking about is struggling kind of hand-to-hand combat, so to speak, against the basic instincts of human nature for good or often <laughs> bad in the cases where you have to take action, right? And so yep. for, for a tech company like uh, Google and YouTube, and this is something that I remember 
I, I talking to uh, the head of news and politics, um, Steve Grove, back when he was at uh, YouTube, because I started out on YouTube in 2007 mm-hmm. doing political videos. Oh, wow. And mm-hmm. uh, I interviewed Ron Paul in my dorm room. That was my big claim to fame. And <laughs> so a video but which I hope, by the way, stays on YouTube for decades and decades to come. Yeah, um, you got to check your channel make sure that's not taken off already. Yeah, well, that's still there. I, I, I have, I, I'm sure that's still there. You know, um, I got to watch it every day. Yeah, I definitely – I got to keep those views going up. Um, so uh, – but I remember talking to him about this and even in the, the – and it seems like the distant past of YouTube's early days. The idea was Google didn't want to be kind of a, a content company. It wanted to be more of a, a – a curator, so to speak, but more of a vehicle for people to express their creativity rather than the content creation engine itself. And we can mm-hmm. talk about whether YouTube's trying to create more content now from a commercial perspective or you know, getting into the content wars with other content platforms. But I think also that uh, philosophy kind of reflected an idea that many people have blamed you know, big companies like Google and Facebook and others for, which is like trying to have be very kind of technocratic and not actually wade into the, the mucky nature of human uh, nature and the realities of what you have to deal with. So do you have to, do you have to just kind of wade into human nature here or are there more elegant kind of technical solutions you can apply? It's, it's going to be a mix, and like I'm not the subject matter expert when it comes to deriving policies and talking at very – like it's kind of above my pay grade at a certain point of thinking. But I do know that when it comes to pre-recognition or po- like post kind of analysis of these topics and you know just if you, if you take into consideration the last 12 months, there needs to be – policy or things put in place that have human nature baked into them and it's not just human nature at a single singular person you know it's like these things aren't being dictated by one person being like this is good and this is bad or this is harmful this is safe this is extreme this is normal because it's very subjective right when you talk about like at a human level yeah what you james probably think as you know mildly suggestive someone could think is extreme um, so as the systems try to process, and then you, you cross cultures, right. And like, what is acceptable in one place and what's not. Yeah. And you start thinking about this universal nature of like, especially, I, I guess a good example in video games is that's becoming increasingly clear is like violence and games with hyper realistic graphic bone shattering brains exploding, you know, all this stuff mm-hmm. that you love video games for that yeah. now it's like looking really good, like really, really, really good as far as the graphics and how even like a normal computing system that would look at one thing that's real and one thing that's digital, like that's only going to get better. And that's actually what is concerning me is that there's going to be a spot where like a mortal combat could be, look so realistic that, you know, we'll have to make an argument for why that's okay. Or like why maybe it's not, or, you know, like, like why that's, that's too realistic to be, to, to, you know, suggest that globally, there's a global connotation that that's not like good, you know, that's harmful for people. It's been an age old argument about do video games cause violence. And up until now, I think you could argue that, you know, playing a classic version of uh, GoldenEye uh, is is not necessarily going to turn anybody into a serial killer. Cause I like to play that game with my friends growing up. Um, right. But but you're absolutely right. Like if we get you know if you take the Star Trek: The Next Generation example and go all the way to the holodeck, where or the Ready Player One example, to use a more current mm-hmm. sci-fi uh, mm-hmm. story, where you're strapping it on some kind of holographic gear and you really feel like you are actually in the game and your brain has no way of telling which is which, and then you mm-hmm. kill someone in the game and it seems realistic. Does mm-hmm. that do some kind of psychological damage 
to you. Um, For sure. And, and, and I, I, yeah, I mean, and I, by the way, I don't necessarily envy you, you know, in a position to be getting all these questions and be wrestling with all these things. I think it's a, it's fascinating that a lot of these technical questions boil down to kind of existential philosophical questions, really. The mm-hmm. more technical you get, the more you have to wrestle with issues of human nature. And human nature at scale, too, right? It's like, I think it's the whole, how many sample sizes do you run it past or how many people need to universally accept things are, should be, you know, the way they are or perceived the way they are. Yeah. And I think it's such a tricky line where you kind of derive things like, is it harmful or is it bad natured or is it distasteful? And I think, you know, right now it helps a little bit as a platform, you know, we're trying to think about how to make brand. It's like, you know, you, in, in, in a lot of ways you try to think about where the money's coming from as well. And you think, well, brands, you know, and advertisers are the backbone of YouTube. I don't think that's anyone's that's, that's news to anyone. Right. Mm-hmm. So in, in many ways, when we think about millions of people monetizing and the content they upload, well, yeah, we can write community guidelines. And I think we should around, you know, whatever categories we need to, but at a certain point, even those aren't enough. And you, and we need to think about brand safety. We need to think about, what does a Procter and Gamble think about? What does a Colgate? What does a Buffalo Wild Wings? What is a you know Acura? Like all these different brands, and they have different perception of what is you know they need to also define how their brands align with the digital age and what is acceptable for them to to play in, right? Even like at a very fundamental level, getting away from TV expectations to digital content, right? Mm. That's like a huge. That's like a huge argument that I think a lot of pundits and people talk about YouTube is like, okay, well, are the TV dollars flowing um, to YouTube? And when that happens, like, how are the expectations being rewired so that people buying that content and thinking about it? Are they lowering their expectations? Is it just like a different world that we live in where an Instagram or a YouTube or a Twitter or a Facebook impression is so much different than a TRP or a GRP or these things that like traditional media people have been buying with the intention that they know that that's brand safe and like, you know, someone's behind a control board making sure that it's filtered. There's no profanity. It's like this huge, crazy other world that we could talk about probably deserves another five hours, James. (laughs) All right. Well, I'm going to make you a co-host on a separate podcast then and just dive into it. Um, Yeah. You know, you talk about brands having a say, obviously tech companies have a say, um, to what extent should the reg- should you know regular people and what to what extent can regular people be involved in this conversation because this is another factor right you've got really important decisions to make as a platform about all of these things and you know I, I don't know how many people work I don't know how many people are, are actively thinking about this but it's got to be a, a relatively small handful compared to the number of people that will be affected by it globally so mm-hmm. how do the regular members of the audience, even if you're not a YouTube creator, obviously you'd be affected by this because you watch it or your kids might watch it, et cetera. So how should regular people join the conversation? That's, I mean, there's a little bit of a democratization of comments in the way, like when people watch content and just leave literally comments, um, (laughs) right? They watch it and there's some opinion that gets the subjectivity kind of gets ingrained in the reaction of you know people and when they watch things. I think uh, it's a little it gets a little bit lost. I don't think it's a high level philosophical question. I don't think commenters are like really weighing in on unless there's like really graphic stuff or like some terrible trend that's going around where it really is eroding some fabric of society where people are like take this off of YouTube, right? right. Um, and that's when we usually get flagged, right? Or that's when something that has come, somehow escaped you know, our guidelines or our policies that we kind of then have to revisit. But typically it's this like autoimmune system of this wily, 
you know, democratized video platform that these things, it's like really hard to predict. And it's almost like the audiences naturally kind of push these, this bad stuff up, you know, through the, the surface of the skin of the platform, right? They push it up in the sense that they distribute it more widely or they push it up in the sense that it gets the attention of you and other people gets, at the platform yeah, so they can yeah. do something about it. Yeah, more so that I think okay. like when it by the and sometimes that's too late, unfortunately. I mean, like we'll try to figure it out and predict these things as they're happening. But like, you know, the systems are only so good right now in, in the way that um, we can pre-detect this is like it's it's ever evolving. We're never going to get it right. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think like the audiences usually will find that stuff. And that's a, that's kind of a bad answer for now, but hopefully it gets better. The one answer to how to deal with this stuff is regulation, right? Like one, mm -hmm. uh, one potential answer is we can't, we, the platforms can't either can't regulate or won't regulate themselves, or it's, it's unrealistic for them to have to make these kind of um, ethical, moral decisions. That's what the role of democracy is. That's what government's mm -hmm. role is ultimately to do regulators operating at the uh, request of legislators who are elected by the people. So that's also obviously a very imperfect solution, but that's another way that society can deal with this. Are, are you, are you expecting kind of additional content regulation or maybe any content regulation to come down the pike in the next five years? Are you kind of bracing for that? I mean, like a simple answer is look at what's happening in EMEA, right? With article 13. Um, I won't really weigh in totally on like that, but I mean, that's kind of, that's just a sign to look at content regulation at a not really at the level that we're talking about, like policies and regulating like the, the actual content types, but more about the rights and who owns the rights and how do platforms that allow, you know, user generated content. Uh, what role do we take in, you know, accepting that or giving the rights over to the rights holders? And can you, um, so can you that, do a quick 20 second explanation of what what that is for people who don't know? legislation being passed through parliament that essentially um would you know in, in our position kind of threaten the creator community it'll it'll allow or it'll force companies like ourselves to pre-scan or take you know before it's even uploaded right because like now content that's uploaded on the platform we have a lot of tools for right holders to go and scan that content and mm -hmm. say hey that that music or that likeness or that video clip like, let's just say it's an NBA clip. That's ours, right? And then we want to either monetize it or we want to track it, right? And we want to see – and we want that attributed back to us. What um, Article 13 could suggest is that, you know, before that content even goes up, um, it would need to be scanned and vetted and attributed back to the to the rights holders, which in many cases could be threatening, quite frankly, to people wanting to – upload it in the first place, right? And, and the thoughts around fair use and transformative content, because they'd run into the initial roadblock about, you know, the they'll, they'll instantly give the rights holder some means to, to either, you know, claim rights or otherwise to that content, whether right. that's gaming content or news, sports, someone's likeness, right? Like any, like right. literally the meme generation would be kind of eroded. And we, and this is in, this is the European parliament, obviously that you're talking about. Correct. Um, Correct. Correct. We've, we talked a little bit about this at CES, I think, which is this very interesting, uh, kind of quasi gray area around, uh, intellectual property rights, especially in the video game space where people are obviously uploading a video game that they're doing something original within, as the mm -hmm. you know avatar in the game, but obviously the video game itself and the world and the graphics and everything was created and owned by some other company, mm -hmm. and that, that's a fascinating. I mean, I just rewatched that documentary. Uh, you've probably seen it. Everything is a remix. 
<laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which which I've makes a pretty that. strong case, like a, a, almost a radical case, if you take it to its logical conclusion, that like there should almost be no intellectual property, because or, or at least the way to get the most creativity is just to have no intellectual property mm-hmm. at all and just remix everything, because that's all anything mm-hmm. is anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, of course, obviously the uh, <laughs> the ability to monetize content on the platform might be a little bit different as well. So they're clearly, you know, I think probably most people agree there needs to be some kind of balance there, but. Um, that's a fascinating issue, but look, we did mention Stadia early on in this conversation, and since that is the thing that you said you're thinking about maybe the most right now, I want to make sure we get into that. So can you give me uh, a 20-second explanation of what that is? Yeah, so uh, in Stadia specifically or the kind of work we're thinking about? Um, well, first, I guess the announcement that came out uh, maybe a week or two ago, just yeah. a, kind of a recap of what that is. Is this is this something that I can replace my... Xbox with, I actually didn't look at the announcement too closely. Is this like a different <laughs> video game system or is it something on top of the existing machinery? No, that's, that's actually the, it's the opposite of what it's, it's the slogan is gaming doesn't have to be in a box anymore. So it's essentially games you can play through your, your Chrome browser. Right. right? But, but I don't have to have an Xbox, but it, this would be, instead of getting an Xbox, I could open up my Chrome browser and there is a controller, yeah, though, exactly. right? Like I'd have yes. a controller, but I'd just be connected to my computer. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So um, it could be on any device, actually, not even just a computer, right? A mobile phone that has a Chrome browser on it. Anywhere that you can load it, right? Your TV that you plug in a, a Chromecast, which essentially is a, you know, can emulate a Chrome browser. Mm-hmm. So any device really that Chrome is on, it is a cloud computing or, you know, cloud street game streaming service where all the processing um, power, so like graphics, everything else is done within the cloud. So you can kind of play through games or play games through the cloud. Um, so yeah, I mean, like if your question is, can you play, can this replace your household system? Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, becoming, you know, this announcement was, was I think kind of a mind bend because, you know, for a lot of reasons it's gaming subscription, you know, like a potential gaming subscription service or otherwise where, you know, you could, you could play games, anywhere you can play the same games that you love anywhere like high fidelity games it's not just like i don't know mobile games are confined to your phone because of the fidelity and the graphics and the processing unit within your phone this is like literally offloading everything to google cloud servers right yeah which is kind of like a a brain melt for a lot of people and i think it left a lot of people like wait is that possible you know is there going to be input lag which i assure you has been many um many 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 iterations in the testing to make sure that like when you push a it's seamless with like what actually happens in the game um but yeah obviously more than 20 seconds but that's kind of the gist of stadia is, is a cloud game streaming service and is the idea that these will all be original games to the platform or are games from other platforms can i play super mario on it you know would be an obvious question It'll be both, right? So I think we announced that there'll be a studio head within Stadia that will be developing like Odin operator first-party content. Um, and there's obviously going to be an element to licensing or having your other favorite AAA games uh, be available through the service. So it'll be a, a mix kind of the same way, um, you know, there's Microsoft Game Studios with Xbox or PlayStation has, you know, Sony Entertainment. Um, Nintendo obviously has their own first-party, but they also license out uh, from different you know, publishers and game companies, personal IP. So yeah, the dream is to have a strong lineup of content, both third party and first party. 
And this kind of closes the loop for you in a way, right? Because then you can have obviously seamless integrations with YouTube and streaming to other people or then creating the YouTube videos out of the game. And I'm sure the possibilities are um, exactly. obvious and endless. Yeah, it's both like initial for YouTube. I mean, we were um, pretty tied to the hip with a lot of their announcements. I think the the implications are pretty pretty bananas. Like when we think about it, just you know, building in the software. So when you're playing games, it's like like you said, in the, actually in the beginning of the phone call, breaking down some of the barriers to upload your content. Right, like if you're mm-hmm. a streamer and as you're playing games, there's a seamless kind of interface which you can you can lightweight start streaming as well to your channel. Um, that would break down a lot of barriers of like in different encoding software. And that team obviously has to work on making it look as good, I think, as a, a stream that has high, high quality today. You know how like streams when you watch them today have subscriber notifications. They have mm-hmm. so many different nuances, emojis, blah, 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 everything that you can imagine. I think like the team when they're developing this product to seamlessly stream need to consider those because I think we're past the era of just like – yeah, as long as you can stream, that's cool, right? Like PlayStation right now, if you click a button, you can stream to YouTube. But that's kind of not enough, right? I think like streamers need a little bit more like widgets and modules and things to keep that stream fresh and exciting. Um, but at least we broke down that barrier between you know our game platform and, and our, our video platform, which will be sweet. But where I really get excited is like all the the product features that were announced. So like you can join, you know, your favorite YouTuber can be playing a game and you can literally click a button to queue up to play in that person's game with them in their in your game browser right you don't have to go like to your xbox boot it up Mm. to your tv add you on a friends list join your lobby and you know figure that all out that'll be completely seamless so like you can knock out a bunch of steps in that process so let's just say you can join you know mark players fortnite lobby or you guys can play some other co-op game together that would be pretty crazy to think about and then the share uh share state or state share or i think it's share state um where games you can kind of jump in at any moment right based on like where someone has kind of said hey let's just say i'm at the certain boss level or certain point in mario maker and i want you to jump in right into this point it'll be a seamless thing for a end user you know not playing with the creator but to just click a button and to let's say start a time trial or play at that same point in the game that's kind of crazy and then i, I keep on thinking about like you know, I think Amazon actually does this really elegantly where like when you're watching a Prime video um, or a video on Amazon Prime, let's just say The Godfather or I don't know what movies you like, and you pause it, there's like yeah. this X-ray technology that shows like here is, you know, um, Marlon Brando and Al Pacino and yeah. this scene was shot and this play, you know, mm-hmm. for gaming, if you pause, it can all of a sudden pull up all these contextualized videos from YouTube while you're playing a game. So like Assassin's Creed, you pause it knows where you are. It knows you're in the Vatican or something like that. And they're going to pull videos that are, you know, can help you through that same level. And that's when I think it starts getting exciting for YouTube is like using all the metadata on the YouTube end to pair it with in-game data to provide you with like a richer experience. How do you uh, unplug from video games yourself? Because you're obviously super excited about it. And like just hearing you talk <laughs> about it gets me excited to go play some more video games. But I, as a professional... In this space, like how much do you play per week, and then how do you unplug? Because this is this is not even necessarily just a joke. I mean, this is obviously a real issue for some people that sink so much of their time into this, and clearly that's what you want them to do on some level, right? You want people to be spending time doing this, but people also have to take showers and like breathe fresh air once in a while. So, like, I do those things. Um, so don't get me wrong; I keep the hygiene going. But <laughs> you know, I, I look at it; it's, it's difficult to be like a 
like a gaming um, or not to like pat myself on the back, but it's like it's a little bit more difficult to be in the gaming space and always be like caught up with what's going because the space is moving so fast. Right. It's like really hard to keep yourself relevant. And I and I and I regard this as playing games <laughs> like as simple as that like you need to kind of play the games see where the industry is going you have to see how games are being monetized what platforms they're they're launching on or what the gameplay mechanics are like are they long games are they short games are they multiplayer only are they free and all these nuances so in a lot of ways i'm always playing games like i would my fiance uh probably in the entire time we've been dating has, has known i've played everything from you know, the early PUBG days to the mobile PUBG version to now Fortnite to now Apex Legends to just every, like I'm always playing games. Mm-hmm. And it's something that's a little bit different than I think. And I don't want film or TV or book people to come at me with pitchforks, but it's a little bit different because games are such a, a lean in kind of experience, sure. right? Like you can play it on many different difficulties and often oftentimes you have to sink a lot of time. Like let's just say God of War, right? You don't have to sink all 80 hours and finish everything to have an opinion, but it definitely takes you like sitting down, like I I guess like you would a movie or a book, but you actually have to spend some like a good amount of time with some games to actually get to a level where you have like a, you know, you know how to play the game and you know, it's like, it's not just like reading where you have like literacy, you need to have like multiple game mode literate like you have to have a lot of literacy in playing a puzzle game versus a battle royale game versus a first person shooter. Like oftentimes people can't really be a pluralist in games. So like being a professional, though, I think in the space and someone who touches content and all these different content formats where you have to understand why people are watching Battle Royales more than they are watching mobile games more than they are games like sandbox games like Minecraft or um, like Grand Theft Auto. You kind of intrinsically know how people are playing those games, right? Um, So to answer your question, it's hard to unplug, but it's also not like unfun to play games all the time. <laughs> so to answer your question is like, no, like I'd stay, I'd stay plugged in as much as I can. So long as I can, you know, so long as my, yeah, I could keep my relationships yeah. intact and, and I could you know, maintain a level of hygiene. Difficult balance. And you asked the greatest excuse ever for like slacking off. You can just tell people that you're doing really in-depth research. And they oh, I've pretty... played, I've played that card way too many times in my life, James. <laughs> they have to believe you. What are they going to say? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, talk about different kind I want to, uh, try and wrap this up a little bit because, uh, mm-hmm. this is, we got, we definitely could go for a much longer time and I hope that we continue the conversation in other episodes and other interviews. Um, but the, uh, you mentioned a couple different kinds of games, you know, first person shooters, third person games, like there's casual mobile games, there's different kind of overall genres or concepts for games. And I think we could rattle them all off. Is there, um, the kind of battle Royale style obviously came to uh prominence uh i guess in the last couple years mm-hmm. is there a concept of a game now that's kind of just on the periphery but starting to get traction that you think will be more mainstream in the next couple of years man that's a great question and it's so hard to know like you know the battle royale burst was work was being developed for many, 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 many years, right? Like yeah. this was back in this game called Daisy, uh, or I'm sorry, Arma, which had a mod where you were like, you know, it's kind of zombie outbreak. And then that went to Daisy went to H1Z1, H1Z1 iterated, then it was PUBG and then PUBG went to Fortnite, Fortnite went to Apex Legends. And it's, it's just such a wonderful concept because it's so bite-sized and it's so fun to watch one person 
win it all, right? Mm-hmm. It's like so conducive towards that. Um, and it's so fun to, to both play and watch, which isn't the, like, that's uh, that seems obvious that the games are like that are most fun to play or the most fun to watch, but it's actually like not the case, right? Like Candy Crush or something could be really fun to play for some people, mm. but it's terrible to watch someone play Candy Crush, right? Like yeah. you're not going to sit around watching, or like Angry Birds, right? Some games aren't fun to watch. Um, so that's what I always have to put a lens on, right? Like how... Uh, how how fun is it both to play and how fun is it to watch? I would say something that's really interesting is like games as a like being used for like role playing. I think is something that's going to happen more and more. It's always happened like in the mach- that's like literally the idea of machinima, right? Like using in game characters to emulate sitcoms or scenarios or mm-hmm. you know virtual situations. Um, I see it happening with Grand Theft, like Grand Theft Auto is a hotbed for role playing right now, and a lot of people like to watch variety streamers or uploaders pretend to be cops or robbers or civilians and follow like rules of, you know, Grand Theft Auto worlds. I think it's been going on in Minecraft for a long time. Like all these role, like the idea of role playing is is many faceted, but I think um, so. It's hard to say that that's the next genre because it's already so prevalent. I don't know. It's it's if, if you're going to talk about a game format. Oh, man, I would say, you know, I thought it was going to be I really did think it was going to be more games like Clash Royale, to be honest, where it was like a mobile game where everyone has their phones and that's going to enable the next generation of like phone games, Mm -hmm. you know, and that was also watched like everyone was watching the game Clash Royale as well on the Internet. Um, But then that genre wasn't that sticky, that like one on one tower defense kind of mode didn't stick around for a long time. So it left me scratching my head. And then games like Pokemon Go, right, like augmented reality, real life games. Oh, my God, that was like absolute blockbuster on YouTube. And, you know, but then it it, but then it fizzled out. And I think, you know, this year or next, there's going to be a bunch of AR games that come out that, you know, I don't know if that's like a, a game mode, though. Right. Or if that's like what you're kind of getting at is like a trend like battle royales like are like ar games where you're doing stuff in real life going to become like a full-fledged mode i don't know maybe it's just kind of like i'm trying to think outside the lines of just like game modes and more about how different mixed media will skew towards the next thing that's one of the best uh i don't knows i've ever heard and I, I mean that as a serious compliment because I, obviously the answer is that nobody knows, right? And, and if you could predict it, you'd be a billionaire or whatever. But I think that that's I think that even that answer was an interesting glimpse into all the different possibilities and places things can go. And obviously, even when you're an expert in the space and play as much as you do, and you think you kind of know what the trend might be, it goes in a different direction. So it's obviously a fascinating place to watch. By the way, do you have statistics like how many are there a certain of the number of people who play games versus the number of people who watch games? Do you have any sense of the numbers there? <laughs> And how they stack I love up. this question. No, I don't. I, I don't. And this is funny because I was at South by Southwest um, about a month ago and there was I was doing a panel on kind of like the, the young generation of, of uh, gamers and creators. And someone came up and asked during the Q&A if there's ever going like, to be a point of singularity where there's more consumers than there are players or like there's more people watching games than there are creating. Mm-hmm. Um and it just like put my mind into this weird bed where I'm like, I don't think that's going to happen. Like, no way. But then I started thinking about it and I was like, I don't know. Maybe I should look at the stats. Yeah. <laughs> and so I don't know. I, actually, I, I never have pulled that at a macro sense because it's kind of hard to – it's kind of tr- hard to track um, 
But I'll give it maybe for the next time we chat, James. Maybe I'll give you a glimpse into some numbers. Well, it's interesting because with like football, professional football, obviously much, many more people watch that than can actually. Oh, play less it. than one percent. But right? with 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 esports, you know, at least the idea is like maybe that could be me, or like there seems like a, a there's a more permeable barrier for me as the guy watching it to become the guy playing it, at least in my mind. Right. That would be a great stat. I need yeah. to, I need to figure this out for you. That's yeah. uh, that's some homework I have. Well, James. that is a great hook uh, for the next time that we chat. <laughs> um, yeah. I really appreciate it, Lester Chen, head of gaming for YouTube, head of gaming Americas. Is there a head of gaming for like Asia? We have counterparts in APAC and EMEA, believe it or not. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, so Lester Chen, head of gaming Americas at YouTube. Thank you so much for joining me on Kotecki on Tech. Thank you.